Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write this, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flaming fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I am, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Let's hear it for that choir again. And Robin, Jeff's friend, Britt, who came all the way here to visit us and help us lead worship too. We'll hear from her again too. Well, I hope you had a nice week. Uh, you had trick-or-treaters? Did you have trick-or-treaters? I didn't have a single trick-or-treater. We did turn out all the lights. And we left the house and didn't come back till later. But not a single one. And so I have all this extra candy, and I don't know exactly what to do with it. Um, hey, Brian Kelly, would you come on? Put your phone down. I caught you, buddy. Oh, yeah. Hey, come on. That's okay. World Wide Web, this is Brian Kelly. Hey, how you doing, man? Doing well. Did you guys have trick-or-treaters? We did not have a one. You didn't have a one. Okay, well, here you go. So your girls probably would love to have some candy. I've got plenty here. I don't I like to, anymore. Well, I'd like to share with, with your family. Now, here's the thing about this candy. Um, some of the pieces are poisonous. If they touch your child's lips, they will instantly die. You would probably die within an hour. I'm, I probably will last the afternoon, but I would be a goner too. So <laughs> what do you think? Do you want to risk it? Do you want to take this candy and try or, or maybe pass? What do you think? I'll probably pass. Oh, that's good, man. Let's give it a hand for Brian. Put it on the spot. Put on the spot. All right, so we are reading about the church in Thyatira, it's the smallest of the seven churches, and yet they get the longest letter. And Jesus, right out of the gate, says, you guys are doing great works of service. I see your love growing. Your, your works are abounding. And he even says that uh, your faith and love has grown. It's growing from where it was before. So what's the problem? The problem is 
this church is tolerating a poison that's spreading through the church. It's being passed around. And Jesus wants to do something about it. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Thyatira. It was uh, the smallest of the churches, and yet it was a very important commercial hub in uh, the Near East, in Asia Minor. And there in, in that, that little city was a thriving business sector. It was the center of a great amount of, of business. It was also the center of worship of Apollo. Apollo is the son of Zeus, uh, the father of all gods, and Apollo was uh, the the patron god of that town. And he was the god of, of all the trade guilds uh, that were in that city. A trade guild, it's sort of like a union. It's, it's a collection of, of artisans or craftsmen that, that all agree to be part of a, a collective uh, to do business and to work together. And so you'd have different trades and crafts. Maybe there's metalworks or maybe there's fine jewelry or or precious uh, things like salt and other things of that, that nature. The first, um, the first convert in Philippi during the Apostle Paul's ministry is a woman named Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira. And what did she trade in? Do you remember? Purple cloth. That's very, very valuable. Not only the creation of cloth, but then the, the materials needed to dye it purple. Extremely valuable. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. So here's the thing about these trade guilds. They required social activities. And we're not talking about bingo night or, or an occasional uh, party. No, they required social activities that mixed not just business with pleasure, but business, pleasure, and worship of the gods. I won't go into great detail because I can't see uh, the ages of everyone here and find out if we're all over 13. But I'm going to let your imagination run with you of how wild these parties are. And reading about the historical accounts of what was happening in these trade unions, of, of uh, these trade guilds, uh, it would make you blush to see the things that were, were happening there. Super compromising for Christians. Idol worship. Eating of foods that were that were given to, to these idols. And the worst forms of human exploitation, regardless of gender or age, of those that were brought into it, even slavery. The conundrum for the Christian guild members was this. How, how do I remain faithful to God, keep my loyalty to Jesus, and be a good business person? Brian Kelly, business owner right here in the, in the second row. Imagine those among us here who own a business or you work for a big corporation, understand this tension. How do I continue with my business, with my trade? And you think a craftsman is something that you would start as a child and learn for years and years and years. That's the only thing you are skilled at doing. How do I maintain this business and care for my family that requires being part of a trade guild that gets involved with the worst of the worst types of compromising behavior? and yet still remain loyal and faithful to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That was what was happening in this church and in this community, the risk of losing by compromising. That's the tension. Look at verse 20. I want you to underline or circle key words. I have this against you, Jesus says. You tolerate. See, see something that happens in the church it has to be tolerated by the church. It has to be somewhat uh, allowed to some degree. It doesn't just 
happen out of thin air. They are tolerating something. They are allowing something to occur. You tolerate, you the church collective, plural, that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. This was not a title that she was uh, given by the church or anyone authority. She calls herself this. She says, I am a, a, a mouthpiece. I am a spokesperson for God. And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, last week, we looked at the problem in Pergamum. This was a church that, that was compromising. It wasn't as bad as it is this week. When we look at the letter last week, we see that Jesus says, there are some among you that are delving into these, these terrible teachings. But here, it's really gone off the rails. But with last week's message, do you remember Jesus uh, evokes the name Balaam, who was an uh, Old Testament prophet, a prophet who, whose services were bought off by a king of, of the Moabites to try to influence and derail Israel. Now remember what we're looking at. We're looking at um, apocalyptic writing. As I said throughout the series, and I'll remind you, if you're first time here, you're trying to catch up with speed, this is a particular type of a genre of writing, apocalyptic writing, where we first try to understand the metaphorical meaning, the symbolism behind what we see. And so here it is, the reference to Jezebel. Raise your hand if you've heard of heard that name, Jezebel, before. Have you heard that phrase, turn? Some people say this is misogynistic to label this woman. She's a working woman. She's got, she's got mad skills. She's a communicator. And, and men throughout centuries have misused and misrepresented her. Ah, forget all that. She is, throughout all of Scripture, the worst of the worst villainesses in the pages of, of the Bible. That's what she represents. Now listen, remember again what we're looking at. We're looking at Revelation. And so was this woman in this church, was her name Jezebel? Probably not. It, it, it doesn't really matter it's used to grab hold of our attention. Jesus is speaking of someone who was a Jezebel type, an influencer who is using her, her skills and her communication and, and everything else to turn this church away from the Lord. So is that really her name? Probably not, but does it matter? No, because the truth is the meaning, the meaning behind the word of what she represented. So what does Jezebel represent? I said she was a uh, a, villainous, a villain uh, in the Old Testament. Who is Jezebel? Well, Jezebel was the daughter of a rival people, uh, a pagan people, and she became the queen by marrying King Ahab. You can read about their story uh, in the book of Kings. And Ahab was the worst of the worst kings. I mean, he was no good from the start. And he sees Jezebel and brings her in, and somehow she makes him worse. If you can imagine that, he's the worst of all the kings in ancient Israel, and she somehow leads him to make, th make even worse choices and decisions. She en encourages his worst instincts by using her sensuality to corrupt people. You can read their story in 1 Kings chapter 16 to 22. Spoiler alert, it ends really badly for both of them. I mean, it's, it's pretty yucky. 2 Kings 9.22. Just don't look at it now. Wait till after lunch. It's rough. Jezebel was worshiping Baal. And Baal was 
the God of nature, the God of fertility. And so she came into the court uh, of Ahab's uh, kingdom and began to teach and communicate, and she's began to have influence over social policy and political policy and religious policy, that it was all right, and in fact, it was in favor to worship both Baal and Yahweh. You could divide your loyalties. She imported 450 of her own prophets to come and to make sure that people were indoctrinated. Let's start with the children, how about? Let's make sure they know it's okay to worship Baal and Yahweh. And her influence grew through cunning, cruelty, and murder, murderous uh, instincts. She began to lead the compromising worship of the people to accept a rival God to the one true God. That's Jezebel. And what Jesus is saying here is this Jezebel-like person who called the deep things. He references deep things. Maybe these were the deep teachings, things that were mysterious, things that only you can hear from me as an influencer. Jesus labels them as what they really are, the deep things of Satan. And what would those be? You can have the best of both worlds. You can engage in all the activity, engage in all the fun at these uh, trade events of your guild. And on Sunday, you can worship Jesus too. In fact, I could imagine this teaching, and it doesn't say it in scripture, but I could imagine where this goes because it has throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the history of the church. Your worship and your commitment to Jesus will only grow if you but accept the other things in the world too. You'll be more, not less. It will add to your faith not decrease. And this church was tolerating the influence of the self-proclaimed prophetess. Why? Imagine the pressure that they must have been under to fit in. The pressure to fit in. When does that pressure start? I mean, it started with, for me, in elementary school. What do you think? When, when does the pressure to fit in begin? Students, when does it start? Grade school? Middle school? Kindergarten? <laughs> the reality is it, it never leaves. The pressure just continues. All these adults, they're still basically, we're all still stuck in ninth grade, wherever we work, except at, at Maple Valley Church. The pressure of the powerful pl- played upon these people's worst instincts, and it distorted the gospel. What, what seemed to to make this, this especially bad, and as bad as this is, as poisonous as this teaching is, what seems to be making it even more uh, terrible in the eyes of the Lord, and I, I'm drawing this just because he makes more than one reference to it, as bad as it is that this Jezebel type is bringing this poisonous teaching, worse than that is her unwillingness to repent, to change her mind, to turn back. There's more than one reference to it. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refused. Why she refused? Because she was winning. Because no one was calling her to account. And Jezebel's fate and the fate of her children, again, metaphorically, we're not talking about her actual kids, and that's we're going to have celebrate First Communion with, with our kids that have been have gone through a class, and they're actually not here 
I can't see, but I don't think they're here in the sanctuary because this language is so intense. And like, gosh, children, what, what's happening? All the words of Jesus. But these are those that would follow in her teaching, that would continue it on. He says, these children that follow these teachings are going to fall too. I've said this before, but again, it's, it bears repeating. The themes throughout these seven letters will re- be repeated throughout the whole rest of our study uh, in Revelation that will take us into the new year. We're going to take a break uh, for Christmas time uh, for the month of December, and then we'll pick it back up uh, in chapter four and on the way through into the spring. The themes that we see in these seven letters play themselves out through the rest of the book. And what we have here is a foreshadowing of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. I won't have you turn there, but let me just summarize that. Those are the chapters that speak to the judgment of Babylon. Babylon is personified as a person, the harlot of Babylon. And so it's an, uh, we would know it as a place, but metaphorically, it's also a person. It's also an influence. It's all of the world, the fall of Babylon. Listen and see if you pick up a reference in chapter 18 to the letter and the context that we've just read about this particular city in Asia Minor. 1811 speaks to the merchants, the tradespeople, the craftsmen of Babylon. And it actually lists in chapter 18. See, if you just jump to chapter 18, you start reading, like, why are they saying all this? Why are they spelling this all out? Now you know, oh, I got to go back to chapter 2. It spells out all the different types of trade that these merchants were engaged in. And it lists them out. Gold, jewelry, costly wood, spices, and all the trades. It says, the merchants will weep and mourn for her when she falls. It's foreshadowing God's judgment out of his holiness that will fall upon Babylon. See, we, some of us have a very narrow understanding of what salvation means. It means my, my ticket to heaven. It, it's my salvation, what's going to happen in my life or the people around me, my right relationship uh, with the Lord. And yes, and true, and amen to that. But the redemption, the restoration that Scripture speaks of is far beyond just you and me. It's the whole world. And it touches all of the world. The holiness of God, yes, it touches your personal activity and behaviors and the things that we do, but it also touches the injustices of the world. Babylon representing all of that trade, all of that abuse, all of that misuse. Think about uh, the, the stock market crash and the housing market crash of, of 2008. Before that, do you realize a couple hundred years ago, people went crazy for tulips in Europe? And the cost of tulips kept going up, but people kept buying them because they were thinking, well, we'll just keep making money, and the whole economy was crashed. And so there's themes here we're not going to get in today. I'm starting to get into it. Sorry, we'll back it up. Speak to all of God's creation being redeemed and being renewed. The fall of Babylon represents all of that, and it's here, right here in chapter 2. The influence in this little town, this little city, the influence that money and power and pressure can have to divide your loyalty, to cause you and me to stumble and compromise our commitment to Jesus. 
It's in this church. It's in chapter 18. It's throughout Revelation and the whole Bible. And that message is this. Do not remain in your sin, for judgment is coming. There will be a judgment. And see, this ties back to all of the gospel because the good news is Jesus came and paid for your judgment on the cross. Revelation 6, 23, for the wages of sin, the wages, what you get for the work you do, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 23b. I mentioned this in the first service. I want to make sure you know when I say A, B. For long verses, we sort of break them up in two parts. And so when I say a verse and I say B, I'm thinking of the second part of that verse. It might be a whole separate sentence, or if it's a long sentence, it's the second half. So verse 23b, if you're following along, it says this. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mine and heart. Jeremiah 37.10, the promise of the Lord, that the Lord sees and searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. What is that called mine? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Doing it is a gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of your work or your trade or your guild or anything you've earned in this life, not a result of any of those things, any of that standing, any of those grades. It's a gift of God that no one may boast. In the same way that the Israelites were taken out of Babylon. Now I'm jumping back to the Old Testament here. Follow with me. The, the remnant, the exiles that were taken away to Babylon in the same way they were finally rescued and brought back to Jerusalem. We see here in the book of Revelation how that's going to play out that we will be rescued out of Babylon, out of the world, out of the world's tempting into the new Jerusalem. Let me get practical for just a moment if I can. Because this really applies practically to our church and where we are as a church. So I want to ask the question, where were the elders? What, where were the elders in this church? What were they doing? Why were they tolerating this behavior to go on unchecked? Could it be that they were distracted? Or maybe they were buying the lie, hook, line, and sinker. Buying this false message and caving to the pressure. A church requires godly elders. That's why what happens on November 17th, the electing of, of new elders and, and deacons and our mission council trustees, this is not for nothing. This isn't just a tag on. This isn't just a, oh gosh, I don't know. The game's going to start. I guess we can stick around. This is so critically important that we elect from our membership people to lead us spiritually. And that a church worth its salt will be a church that preaches the gospel, that rightly administers the sacraments. If you come from a Baptist background, you'd call them ordinances. But we, we rightly preach the gospel, that we rightly do what's going to happen at this table. We do it rightly according to Scripture. The third leg of, of a true, solid church, and this is so often forgotten, that yes, indeed, a true and godly church has to sometimes exercise discipline. Has to exercise discipline. Go visit somebody. 
talk to them. What's happening in your small group? Who's teaching what? What's going on? Where are the rumors? It's critically important, and that's what was missing here in this church. We also learn from this passage that, that Jesus will judge evil and that there are consequences to our actions. But he also grants repentance to call us out of the kingdom of darkness into the light. How do you square this vision of Jesus here? Here, we don't even have the kids here because it might be too difficult. I'm sure if I picked a passage that talked about the mercy of Jesus and the love of Jesus, we'd have them right here in the front row, right? But this passage offends, offends us. Why is that? Maybe we haven't done a good enough job teaching that God is holy and merciful. And we can't pick and choose the attributes of God that we prefer that make us feel comfortable. Nor can we completely and honestly uh, reconcile all the mysteries of Scripture. But I will be so ashamed of myself and my ministry if I don't preach, if we don't preach all of the Word of God to you. Amen? Amen. Amen. To those who conquer, those who conquer, those who have victory, those, those who hold on to Jesus, look at verse 25. Hold fast to what you have until I come. What do they have? Well, they have faith, and they have hope, and they have love, and they have the influence of the truth, but they have Jesus more than anything. They have Jesus. He says, hold on to me. And there are six facts about Jesus. This is where we're going to wrap, about King Jesus to hold on to. So you've been taking notes. You've already filled up your page. Sorry, here you go. There are six of them. Number one, Apollo was the patron god of this town. He was the son of Zeus. So Jesus says here and only here throughout the whole book of Revelation, in verse 18, this is the only place it happens, circle it, that he is the son of God. Go ahead and choose. Do you want to worship the son of Zeus or the son of the living God? Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible, invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is God. Number two is his flaming eyes. That's a little scary, flaming eyes. I mean, I think about like smoky eyeshadow eyes. It's like a look in your eyes. It's like a pool of ocean, ocean pool. I can just swim. No, but these are flaming eyes. Nothing can be hidden. He sees you through and through. Not to just see through you, but to know you better than you know yourself. If he looks into your life right now, into your desires, your hopes, the pressures you're under, what will he see? What will he reveal? This is a promise. This is a good thing that we might know him better and more deeply. Number three, his feet are like burnished bronze. That's a call back to Daniel. Strong and stable and, and able to crush his enemies. And think about this, this poison, poison in the church. He's going to crush. Somebody's got to clean this up. <laughs> He's going to crush all of his enemies. That's a good thing. Don't wilt behind, oh, oh, we can't read that passage. That's a good thing. That someone's going to deal with evil once and for all. Amen? Number four, verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refused. He gave her time. There is still time. He's so patient with us. That's a good thing. We, we have time, even now. 
Number five, verse 23, I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus is saying that he respects our free moral choices. He will honor the decisions that you make. So choose to this day whom you will serve. Will you serve someone who serves poisonous candy or come to his father's table? That's why he says don't divide your loyalty. He wants all of you. Number six, and finally, the Son of God who sees everything clearly, who's stronger than anybody, who's holy and loving and and leads us to new life. Make sure the kids don't eat this candy, by the way. Also makes incredible promises. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, my works. So we're doing Jesus' work now, people. I will give authority over the nations to rule. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 2 the promise that God gave to his son. And now he says, you will be a part of that. Stick with me and you will work with me. That's his promise. And the final promise, verse 28, I will give them the morning star. Revelation 22, verse 16 says that Jesus is the morning star. The morning star, it shows up around 3 a.m. And that's about what time I woke up this morning, that time change. But the morning star, it's the brightest star at the darkest point of the night. It signals that the dawn is coming. Jesus is saying, I'm giving this to you. Hold on. The dawn is coming. The pressure will release. You will conquer if you hold fast. So our first four letters can be summarized like this. Our first four letters, we started with with, uh, the, the church in Ephesus and all the way through. Number one, Jesus comes first. Jesus is bigger than all of your troubles. Jesus is enough. And today, finally, Jesus is king. Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. You are Lord of the Lord. And we thank you, Lord God, for this word. And and for some of us now, even coming to this table, preparing to come to the table, we need to ask you to search our hearts and to remove from us, God, those things we've done or left undone, those things that we know are not of you, trespasses and sins, O oh God. Prepare us to come to this table and to feed us on uh, your grace. Now, there's some here that are troubled by the pressure that they're facing, troubled by the, the messages of this world. Uh, we, we have lies that are being spoken to us all the time. It's almost like a loop in our heads. What the world says that we are, that we start to say to ourselves, O oh God, break through and speak a word of truth and love, and grace, but also a word of correction where it's needed, that we might repent and turn back and to receive your grace again. Amen.